It's week 15 of 2018, and today on the Technado, we're going to look at the news, but we're also going to bring in Wes Bryan, who's going to explain all the details behind the new Intel chip announcements with Coffee Lake and what that means for us and if we should go out and buy the new i9 chips. That's all coming up on the Technado, starting right now. Welcome to the Technado. I am your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing today? I am here and excited to talk about the tech news, although we've got a little bit of a, a light schedule for today's episode, right? Yeah, we have, um, uh, we're going to be doing the news about half of the episode here, and then um, we have another mic here behind me, because we're going to be bringing in Wes Bryan, who is going to explain all about the new, uh, their Intel chips, right? Just the, Intel? or The, the Intel the i9s, we, the I9. we teased them a little bit last week, and we, we've got Wes who's going to come in and, and bail us out so we don't have to make up yeah, technical like specifications. Coffee something, some weird yeah, name. Yeah, metal eight. Yeah, and, so yeah. no one knows what's going on. So, uh, But Wes does, and so he's going to explain what chips are, and uh, well, probably a little deeper than that. We'll go into why why this chip is a good chip. But first, we want to talk about the news, and the big news this week is Mark Zuckerberg and Congress, and we're not just talking about the fact that uh, that he had a booster seat to sit on, uh, <laughs> apparently, which is really all that Twitter took away uh, from this. But uh, I found an article with, with a few takeaways here uh, that are kind of some of the big things. My biggest takeaway, Don, I don't know how much of it you watch, but my biggest takeaway is, um, number one, that uh, uh, congressmen and women have no idea uh, what Facebook is or the Internet uh, in general. And two... Uh, they have four minutes, and they're going to use it to ask questions, and they don't want to hear your answer because they have more questions to ask. Yeah, their question is their statement. I, I watched a little bit of it. I did not watch the whole thing because, honestly, it was just awkward and weird, yeah. and he wasn't under oath. Uh, the whole thing had no consequences, so it really was just a big show, a performance show for both of them, for, for the congressmen and women as well yeah. as for uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who I, I just I don't understand why— why we waste our time like why why the government waste their time doing it why we as a people waste our time watching it i i don't know i guess it's uh reality tv <laughs> pretty much it's, yeah it's actual reality tv as opposed to the staged stuff uh you know, over on bravo but um some of the key takeaways that they had in this article on the verge um it's uh, that we've got here on msn um some representatives think Facebook violated its uh, consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission, which I know that's something that came up time and time again, and, and Mark's response was, uh, I don't believe that that is the case. Um, and there was just a lot of questions about, uh, you know, how Facebook is, is going to move forward handling this data and, and how long some of this investigation will take. Because it sounds like they're still doing some investigation into um, what other companies might actually have uh, have information on you. Um, another interesting thing here is that uh, Zuckerberg was among the people who had his records taken. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look yet. Well, you probably weren't one, one of the people taken because you have to, you know, interact with people on Facebook uh, in order to. Uh, yeah, not my problem. <laughs> do that. Either I think it's either you took that quiz um, that was the original one that this started with, or one of your friends took the quiz. Because if they took that, then their friends' um, information. Uh, is is available as well, but uh, I was not, so I was I was pretty excited about that. So all my my meals over the last 
several years are still private. So I, I haven't I haven't looked. They released a tool that lets you test this. Yeah, there, um, you can go on uh, on Facebook and there's a page that that basically uh, just tells you whether or not uh, you are. Let me. Uh, well, now, can, now I'm curious. I can I, find I, um, that here. So you know, you make a really good point. Like for me, I don't interact with people on Facebook. I accept friend invites and then I never log in again. Uh, I certainly don't install any apps or games because I don't log in. So there's no point in having an app. But because I accept darn near every friend request that I get, um, that, that means that, you know, any number of those people, total strangers that I've just said, yeah, I'll be friends with you, whatever, uh, that those people may have taken the test. And so my lack of data might have been shared. So I'd, I'd be curious to see that. I, I didn't know they released a tool. All right. I, I like to think that uh, all of the communications I've had with Vladimir Putin have just been my own spontaneous <laughs> thing. Uh, well, I, I've put that in our, our, our podcast chat there, so you can uh, bring that up and uh, and while you do that, let me see what else uh, we've got here. Yeah, it seemed uh, regardless of Democrat or Republican, um, no one understood what what the Internet is or how that works. I, 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 uh, it's a series of tubes. Well, Everybody yeah, I, I saw a fun one where they were talking about like the difference with an ISP. And like we're, you're wasting your four minutes on this when we could we could be asking real questions. Not that you're right there. Not that there's any substance that's going to come out of something that is not. Uh, um, necessarily uh, under oath or anything. So, did you get that link there? Not yet. I'm, okay. Yeah, I, I'm slow oh, to no. uh, John's information. I'm slow to been... do anything. This is this is what happens when you involve me oh, in social media. Uh, here we go. All right. So I'm I'm pulling the page up now. Let me get this resized. Uh, the the biggest challenge for me is just getting logged in. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'm logged in. How can I tell if my information was shared with Cambridge Analytica? And it's right there in the box. There was my information shared based on our. Records, neither you nor your friends logged into This Is Your Digital oh. Life, which is the, the app that was, was used um, to get that information. So, so you're, well, you're all set. And, and I special. And so, yeah, so I've seen other people where it says in that box, um, one of your friends accessed this, so therefore you are, uh, are part of the data. Or I haven't seen anyone that actually took that quiz, but if you did, you would show up there. I think there were only like 18,000 people that, it, hmm. that used it, but the friends of friends functionality is what allowed people to, yeah. to get their information out there. So yeah, big takeaway is that really there's no big takeaways, and it's going to be uh, several months, I think, while, while this continues to shake out and we see um, you know, really the depth of it and, and what steps Facebook and, and other social networks are going to take from here. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up in uh, in security patches and, and fun news like that, we've got something from Microsoft, and this is on ZDNet, uh, Windows Security uh, Microsoft patch for Outlook password leak bug, not a full fix. So there's apparently a way that what people people could see behind the hashes and see what you were right. typing in. So uh, basically what happens is when, when you get an email in Outlook, or really in, in anything, there's a couple of different formats. So it can be plain text email, which is the safest, but it doesn't look pretty, so people don't like it. There's HTML-based email, which is the most dangerous, who looks really pretty, but it can carry malicious payload. There's this in-between format, which is RTF, rich text format. That's like a good mix between safety and pretty, and so there's many, many email clients out there that default to it. But what some security researchers found was that if you crafted an email that was RTF-based and it had links to files, files that were on external web servers, Outlook applied a certain security profile to that. So when you clicked on the link, it would strip out any like security tokens or credentials that you had. And it would basically be like anonymous browsing to that link. Safe. Well, they found that those same protections did not extend to SMB servers, server message blocks. So um, 
in, in the Windows world, if you browse like to a local server, instead of using a fully qualified DNS domain name, you might use a backslash backslash server name, that type of thing. And when you would browse to a resource that way, that it would include your security token or a, a hashed version of your password along with the connection string. So it could say, hey, I'm trying to access this file and I'm already logged in, this is who I am, right? Now, technically that's hashed, it's, it's secured, so it's not that big of a risk, but the security researcher said, look, you, you should really be applying the same level of protection to these SMB servers because I could craft a malicious link that pointed to an SMB server that was out on the internet. And now you'd be sending these credentials out onto the internet. So that was the flaw. Microsoft stepped in and put in a patch. And what the researchers are saying is, hey, we looked at it, and there's still actually ways that we can take advantage of this. Now, I'll be honest with everybody. I, I don't think this one's that big of a deal. And the main reason is, uh, yeah, it's not a good idea to send your credentials to a server that you've never connected to, even, even if it's hashed and secured, because they eventually they may find some way to reverse it, replay it, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but the other thing here is SMB traffic should really never be passing over the internet. SMB is designed for local traffic. And I've been a big supporter for years of people configuring outbound rules on their firewall. A lot of firewalls have tons of rules for incoming traffic. will only allow very certain things to come in, but they allow everything to go out. And that's why a lot of these viruses and worms and, and trojans are able to spread so fast because the machine gets infected and it can send whatever traffic it wants out. It starts spamming the internet. But if we configured our firewalls to say, look, yeah, we want to allow people to go out and browse the web and, and send email. We don't want them to use SMB to reach out to the internet. To internal machines, it's fine with the internet. No, if you had a, a block like that put on your firewall, it wouldn't matter if this was secure or not. You would never be vulnerable to it. Like that, it, it's so easy to fix this. And that's the way that Microsoft's looking at it. They haven't really rushed a big fix out for it. Um, but in the ultra sensitive security news industry, um, this is a flaw that hasn't been fully patched and, uh, and it makes for good news. Now, if we can clarify for the lowest common tech denomin uh, denominator, which is me, um, <laughs> is are we talking about emails that are, um, you know, Peter at Outlook.com or this is people using Microsoft Outlook, the program on their computer? Microsoft or? Outlook, the program. Okay. Yep. So if you're what actually running... access? The, uh, OWS is not affected okay. by this. Yep. Yeah, because at that point, you're just in the web browser. Okay. Yep. So this would have to be somebody running Outlook. And you know, now that you mention it, um, I didn't think of this until just now, which is somewhat embarrassing. I didn't look to see if this affects Outlook on Mac as well, or if it's just the Windows-based Outlook. This article uh, is a little PC... light on the details. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, let's pull up the CV. Because but... it, it could also be in a specific version, but I imagine mm. it'll be the same across them all. Uh, oh, great. I have to accept some random <laughs> licensing agreement to be able to look at. This isn't even the stinking CVE. Ah, see, this is frustrating. There you go. Flash player. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, this is why it's so hard to get legitimate information on some things. But, uh, uh, you know, with this one, I think that a lot of people have moved away from using the Outlook client. Do you use the Outlook client? You know, it's funny. I have... Both the Outlook client opened and um, and the web version because I use the web version when I want to search, mm. um, and I just have the Outlook open for uh, the calendar because I, I find that's a lot easier to use that way. But yeah, for the actual mail, I do that in the web. I use Outlook Web Access, yeah. uh, and I have a few reasons for that. But the main one is that the search functionality in Outlook is terrible. It's so bad. The search functionality in OWA is mediocre, mm. and I'd rather take mediocre than terrible. I wish it had the search functionality of Gmail, which is really the best. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that means 
Which isn't that what you do as well? Don't you have a, yeah. uh, a I do workaround? So, so technically, I've got like Google indexing my email. So we, we talk about Facebook yeah. having access to our data. Google has every email I've ever sent. Uh, <laughs> so that's a that's a bigger concern. Um, well, I mean, I guess they're not. At least they're not changing out emails to look like they're from Vladimir Putin. Uh, <laughs> so, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's this kind of stuff. I I think that. For most people, this is a non-starter. The Outlook yep. client is not terribly popular anymore. E email clients in general are not terribly popular because they still rely on IMAP uh, or require licensing for Exchange. A lot of people aren't using Exchange anymore. So this is uh, is certainly lower on the, on the risk factor. But it is a real risk, and it does give me a chance to highlight my own agenda, which is if people used outbound firewall rules on their firewalls, the world would be a safer place. You'd have a lot less of these attacks, and you'd be much better protected. Well, this is why I only use uh, Microsoft Outlook Express. Um, oh, there you go. Still, yeah, <laughs> definitely the way to go there. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's continue with the the breaches and the uh, the potential flaws here. Uh, this one caught my eye. It's the Great Western Railway accounts were breached, uh, and this is a British rail operator. And and the reason it caught my eye is I said, uh oh, we're aren't we at GDPR time? Is this is this the first one? And uh, no, we've still got some time. I think it's May 25th uh, is when, when the GDPR rules take effect. But uh, I was saying to Don, this, this seems like the time to, if, if you've got any concerns about breaches, announce them now because it's going to be a lot cheaper for you uh, before the 25th. So it, it reminds me of like when uh, interest rates go up on mortgages. Like, you know, if you're going to buy a home, you need to secure your financing now. You need to lock in that rate because the interest rates are about to go up. Well, the fees for a data breach are about to go up. So if you've got one, disclose away. Uh, this one's a bit of a gray, gray area, though, right? Because, uh, like, the U.K. is not – where are we at with Brexit, right? Like, so are they I don't think that's covered? done. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're negotiating Brexit, but I think they're – So they're still, still an EU member, EU. So, so. so they would have bigger uh, a bigger risk here, certainly, than, than yeah. we would. Um, you know, obviously, you need to, to responsibly disclose your breach, but – Part of GDPR has a rule that says if there's been a data breach, you have to notify affected customers within three days. Three days. That's really short. So uh, if you've been sitting on one for a month, first off, shame on you. Second off, uh, get it out there now. That way you don't uh, don't get hit after, is it May 25th? Uh, I don't think the article says. But uh, uh, but these guys, they actually disclosed pretty quick. They haven't disclosed any information about how the compromise happened yet, so I'm curious to see on that one. But uh, it's just you know one more in the long list of of data breaches that we've seen just constantly for the last six months. So according to the National Law Review, um, the uh, official uh, end of of uh, UK's membership in the EU uh, will take place on uh, 29 March 2019. All right, and you can tell so this is a, a, a European site because they put the the day before the month, uh, so 29 <laughs> March. And then uh, it also uh, goes on to say that uh, no, GRD, uh, GDPR will still apply in the UK um, on and from 25th May uh, 2018. They'll still be uh, a member state of the European Union at that point. So I don't know what will happen yeah. after that other date if, if they'll choose to have something similar to GDPR for themselves. Uh, or not, but uh, well, they'll still be held to a good bit of the same way we are, right? You know, if you have yeah. customers or do business in these other countries that are a part of the EU, then uh, you know that that's how how it's going to be. So they'll have all that; it, it'll still apply. Yeah, and I think uh, this next one is our 
our last uh, great uh, breach story for this week, but um, it's kind of an interesting one, especially after what happened in Hawaii earlier this year uh, with um, some emergency response systems. But the emergency broadcast system uh, hack shows the need for encrypted wireless communication. This is from Tech Republic. Uh, apparently, emergency sirens sold by a specific company, Acoustic Technology, uh, use an unencrypted command to control system uh, broadcast over the air, which allows hackers to commandeer them. And the cool thing, I think, is that I was telling Don, they can play anything they want over the speakers, which that's pretty fun. Yeah, so you wake up to these giant speakers blaring Britney Spears across the uh, across the city. That's um, less fun. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they they referenced the, it was last year that was it Houston, Austin. It was a, a city in Texas, uh, somewhere here in the article, um, where hackers managed to capture the the signal that activated the test for the speakers, uh, and there it was like the air raid siren that they play when hurricanes happen, or I guess an air raid. Um, and they were able to replay that signal. And so they were setting off those sirens multiple times over the course of a, a day or two, uh, which scared a lot of people at first. But then towards the end, it made people ignore the sirens, mm. which now you don't have a good way to alert the public to a disaster or an emergency. That's a, that's a big deal. So our emergency systems are, are really, really important. And in the U.S., there's a ton of laws that are designed to help make sure that we don't get desensitized, right? So, for example, um, the emergency broadcast system, there's that screeching noise they, they use whenever there's a, an announcement that's going to be happening. And then I've become somewhat desensitized because what do they immediately say? You know, this was a test, blah, blah, blah. And they, they test a little too often. And sometimes they test in the middle of the night, but a lot of times they test uh, right in the day and, and you just get used to it. Uh, it's actually illegal for anyone to rebroadcast that sound outside of an actual emergency broadcast system test. So, like, if we were to play that sound here on the podcast, it, we would, we'd get in trouble. The FCC or whoever would come after us. Um, there was a, I think it was like an Independence Day commercial that aired with the sound, and they got a huge fine as a result. Huh. So here, these emergency speakers are using an unencrypted wireless communication. So with off-the-shelf parts, you could intercept those communications and see how they were talking. If you just captured one test, you'd be able to figure out how the test worked and then send whatever you wanted. So uh, there are a ton of SCADA systems, like industrial control systems that are like this, that the people that developed it are engineers, people that are really good in one particular area, and now they're trying to shoehorn network connectivity into their devices, and they're doing it in a non-secure manner. So this is the whole IoT thing all over again. It, companies just have to do a better job securing their equipment. Yeah, and it's just like Bluetooth now where you can just pair your phone with the speaker outside of your house and just, just go to town. That sounds like a lot of fun. And it was it was Dallas, uh, Dallas. last year that, that had a, an incident. It says uh, that one was built by Federal Signal. Um, so that, I guess that's a mm. different company than the one that this one's talking about, but still the same kind of issue there. So um, you mentioned – well, you mentioned the FCC. This is, this is the FTC – uh, the FTC staff warns companies that it is illegal to condition warranty coverage on the use of specified parts or services, which that sounds like a pretty big deal because that's, that's what you hear all the time about. If you pop something open and, and use some third-party component, you've, you've voided all, all warranties. Yep. There are a, uh, there's several companies these days that are doing this, and it, it's really annoying. Um, so, for example, you know, maybe you've got a, an HP laptop, and you take the memory out and you put in third-party memory to do an upgrade, right? Well, in the past, they would warn you, like, if you use third-party hardware in this laptop, you voided the warranty, you're, you're out of luck. And so it would discourage people from doing that, and you'd buy official memory. 
But the reality is that's illegal. They're not allowed to do that. And there's a few companies that have been creating warranty statements or advertising that uh, got the FTC fired up enough that they actually sent out some warnings. So it says six major companies. And as far as I can tell, they haven't announced who those companies were. Uh, so when they say major companies, we, we don't necessarily know what that means. Uh, but they've notified them saying, hey, what you're advertising, that's not allowed. And they're reminding us as consumers and, and businesses that when you purchase something and it has a warranty, whoever assigns that warranty has to honor it. And there's no simple out. And my favorite one, they, they specifically mention in here uh, three different statements that companies make that uh, are invalid, right? Uh, and one of them is the use of whatever their company is, uh, the use of our parts is required to keep your manufacturer's warranties and any extended warranties intact. You hear that from a lot of automakers. Uh, you know, you've got to use our official parts when in reality, they're not allowed to do that. Um, this warranty should not apply if this product is used with products not sold or licensed by insert company name. So, you know, now holding it down, uh, like uh, Apple, with their MFI controllers and speakers and things like these are made for iPhone, but you can use anybody's device. It doesn't have to be an MFI device, uh, and it you know, won't void your warranty. But this is the, the best one here. Uh, the warranty does not apply if this product has had the warranty seal on the product altered, defaced, or removed. We've all seen those stickers on a, on a computer, usually over like a screw or over a seam that says, warranty void if sticker removed. Well, it's not. That warranty is not void if the sticker's removed. You can remove it all you want, and you can leave void written all over well, it, and they still have to honor the warranty. And it sounds like this isn't new. It's just they're telling them, hey, what you were doing is is yeah. against the rules. So that's just been a scare tactic this whole time, it kind of sounds like. Yes. So the, the law was actually passed a long time ago, and the problem is it's written in legalese, right? So average citizens can't read it uh, or, you know, without learning Latin. And then— uh, <laughs> Uh, these companies, they're choosing to ignore it and make it sound like your warranty is void when it isn't. And so this is the FTC coming out and saying, look, let's put this in plain English for a second. Here's this, these, these things that companies are saying. You're not allowed to say that. Uh, and so it's consumer protection. It's good to see it happening. Uh, and it's all stuff that, uh, that helps protect us. The original act that all this stuff comes from is the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act. And I wonder if I can find out what year that was released. Um, let's see, about 1975. Wow. So a long time ago, and, and maybe there was an interpretation that had to be done or something, but you know, now they're just trying to clarify and get, get it where everybody's on the same page and understand what your rights are with hardware. That's really important because a lot of computer systems and things that we buy these days, if you want to upgrade them or replace a part, you're going to have to open it, and you're going to have to break some kind of warranty seal. The warranty seals don't matter. They're not yeah. real. I'm going to go home and crack open all my routers and... Cable boxes and everything tonight. This is exciting. Yeah, who knows what's inside? Yeah, this man. I'm gonna all the NSA listening devices. I'm gonna rip the tags <laughs> off the mattresses too. This is this is a big night. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's switch gears now to some open source stuff. Uh, head over to Pharonix, uh, where they tell us that Red Hat confirms is that R H E L or R uh, L? I don't know uh, how things rel. work. These rel sure. rel rel. Uh, Rail 8 will drop Python 2. So obviously, Don, I don't know anything about this, so I'm going to let you take this one. All right. So uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, um, if, if, you've, if you're a Linux user, if you've used Red Hat or you know me, I'm, I'm a big supporter of Red Hat. Uh, as far as commercial Linux distributions go, Red Hat is uh, the, the, the market leader in that. Uh, they have a very stable Linux platform, and they've been on Red Hat 7 for years now. 
And everybody's been wondering, when is Red Hat 8 going to drop? It feels like it's coming soon. And it is. We're getting closer and closer. Uh, but one of the things that's kind of setting a timeline on this is this battle over Python. Now, uh, Ronnie Wong, one of the edutainers over at IT Pro TV, he uh, has been learning Linux, and I've been working with him a bit. And he's watched some of the areas where I get frustrated with Linux, where I've been a, a Linux user for 20 years now. And um, Python is, is one of my frustration points. Red Hat has always focused on making a stable version of Linux, stable and commercially supported, right? So for servers, for businesses, not for people playing video games. And they do that by not updating to the latest and greatest software right away. They wait until it's stable, the fixes are in, and so on. Well, Python 2 was supposed to end of life in 2015. And... So many people hadn't upgraded their scripts and other things to Python 3 yet that when 2015 hit, they decided to extend the end of life for it to, to the year 2020, right? So we're in 2018, two more years of Python 2 support. But that's it. They're not extending it anymore. At the end of 2020, Python 2 is going away. Well, today, if you install the latest version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, it still defaults to Python 2. And it's super annoying because every time I do some kind of a deployment, I've got to upgrade it to Python 3 and it's a whole mess. So uh, they've been really kind of dodgy on giving solid information on when Python 3 was going to be stable. And in the release notes for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.5 that just came out, they said Python 2 is now a deprecated feature, which means it will not make the jump to Red Hat Enterprise Linux version 8. So when version 8 comes out, You'll have Python 3, and that's it, and I'll be thankful for it. Now, they still haven't set a date for Python 3 or for uh, RHEL 8, but this is what's telling us that it's coming soon, at least by 2020. So now we know that by 2020, RHEL 8 will be out. Uh, realistically, it'll be next year, 2019. We'll probably see beta start to drop later this year and RHEL 8 come out afterwards. But if you've got scripts and other things that are dependent on Python 2, 2020 is the end of life on it. And so that's stuff that needs to be updated and ported over. Things are different in Python 3. There's some functionality that just does not work the same. Uh, and you've got to make sure that, that you've got that, that kind of support. Um, RHEL 7.5, what, what actually just came out, what, where all these announcements are coming from, uh, has a couple of neat features in it, most of which I think a lot of our, our listeners probably wouldn't care about. Uh, but one interesting one, let me pull up the release notes here. Um, I've got the official release notes from Red Hat. Uh, one interesting thing that popped up is in the architectures section of the release notes, because when I first glanced at it, I could have swore it said they were moving to kernel 4.14. I said how they maintain stability by using older older you know, uh, uh, software that hasn't necessarily been updated to the latest version because they want stability. Well, if you were running RHEL 7.4, it's running the Linux kernel 3.10 which is pretty old, right? Uh, but it's extremely stable, it's pretty old. And so they mentioned in the release notes right here that uh, RHEL 7.5 is distributed with kernel alt packages, which include kernel version 4.14. I saw that and I was like, well, that's a huge change for, for a minor, you know, from going 7.4 to 7.5. Uh, but it turns out that that's not for the regular Intel AMD processors. That's because 7.5 was the first one to have 64-bit ARM support. So you can actually deploy on an ARM processor. And this is Red Hat getting ready for ARM processor-based servers starting to take over data centers. We're seeing more and more of that. So RHEL will be ready for it. But if you do, 
you'll actually be running kernel 4.14, which is a, a pretty big jump. And so now I'm really curious when we get RHEL 8, whether they're going to jump up to 4.14 also, which uh, would be great for uh, better system D support and hardware support and a number of other things. What's the latest kernel that we're at now? Because I know we just had a, a discussion about 4. that. 4.16. 16. Okay. Yep. And that was the one that takes care of all the meltdown inspector. Yep. And, and what, what Red Hat does is they might be running something old like 3.10. But they take those Spectre and Meltdown and, and all those other updates, and they do what's called backporting. Okay. And so they bring them back so so their kernel is, is heavily patched, but it's still it's still old. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite uh, – there's a lot of features that we expect, especially with, like, Docker and container systems that might not be present in those older kernels. So getting a newer kernel is always a big deal. Gotcha. Well, I know we talked a couple of weeks ago about um – uh, Apple kind of making that move uh, to 64-bit apps. You, you were just talking about 64-bit sure. there. Um, well, Apple has now begun notifying uh, macOS users. So this is they've, they've notified the developers a while ago that they're going to be making this move, but now they're letting you know as a as an end user that hey, this app you're using needs to be updated or. Um, or in some cases, it sounds like it's even saying this needs to be updated by the manufacturer. So maybe if they haven't made the updates yet, it's I guess kind of calling you out a little bit to the to the yeah. end user that you're not up to date. Well, you know, what they're what they're trying to communicate, and this is with High Sierra 10.13.4. So if you've done the latest update uh, as an end user, you'd now start to see these messages on 32-bit apps. And what they're telling you is, hey, when the next version of macOS comes out, we're not going to support this app. So unless the developer releases an update or unless you apply that update, this program is no longer going to work when you upgrade. This is kind of Apple throwing down that that gauntlet and saying, that's it. We've set a, a line in the sand, and this is what's going to happen. For most people, like for me, all, all of my apps already had 64-bit versions in place, so I don't have a single app that's affected by this. But I'm not the usual. I think that most people have at least one or two apps. And I liken it to um, iOS. When this happened on iOS, uh, I had an iPhone one, the first generation iPhone, and I bought a number of apps. And I was always surprised five years later, you'd be on an iPhone 4 or iPhone 5, and there were all these apps that you used to have. And then by the time I got an iPhone 6, a lot of those apps went away. And what happened was the developers hadn't been updating them. And in fact, in 2017, the, it's, it's the first time that Apple ended the year with less apps than the App Store than they started with because they culled out a bunch of apps that were no longer being updated. Mm -hmm. That's basically what's happening here inside of macOS as well. And it's all getting ready for Apple to start offering um, the iOS apps running on top of macOS. So that's all all coming probably in the next six months because WWDC is coming up. Yeah, and I think all of this is really uh, a, a PR move essentially where they're saying, hey, this, this is the developers because otherwise what's going to happen is everyone's going to say, Apple broke all my stuff, yeah. and, and it, it's not working anymore, but Apple is letting you know ahead of time, every time you open that app, that uh, that this is on the developer to uh, to make those changes. So um, that's probably why you're seeing a lot of those messages. Um, all right, let's move now over to Amazon AWS. We've got a couple of uh, what are these new releases, basically. Yeah, a couple uh, of new features rolled out, and some of these uh, actually launched right as we were filming our show last week. So they're, you know, seven days old or so. Uh, but I thought they were important enough that I wanted to mention them here on the show. Two big uh, two big announcements that came out of Amazon. And this is just part of their routine feature announcement. There wasn't like a giant conference or anything uh, around this one. Uh, one is they released a new utility called the uh, AWS Firewall Manager. So in AWS, you now have the WAF or Web Application Firewall Service. Uh, and you've got... Uh, a couple of other little pieces they've been releasing that are all based around security, uh, like AWS Shield and a few other things. 
So the AWS Firewall Manager is designed to unify all of that security into one panel for you to log in and manage this stuff. So if you have, let's say you're a contractor and you have more than one AWS account that you manage, or you're just an individual, but you've got systems deployed in multiple regions, it's difficult to manage them all at once. And if I have a WAF rule that I want to put in place and apply to eight different regions, in the past, I had to connect to each region individually and apply that rule. Well, now you can use the AWS Firewall Manager. It lets you see it all in one place, and you can have at it. So that tool has been uh, been launched on AWS. Great utility there. Um, I've messed around with it just a hair, uh, and from what I've seen so far, it's pretty cool. I'll, I'll get a chance to, to work with it more a little bit later in the week. But uh, it's another new New feature, you know, Amazon's always trying to add more things. Uh, they also added another Amazon S3 storage tier. So with S3, you have multiple storage tiers, and some are more expensive than others. Like if you want the uh, multi-availability zone storage or uh, the geo-dispersed storage in S3, they, uh, uh, they charge extra for that. Or if you do glacier storage, that's the cheapest because it's offline. You can't get at it for five hours, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so they released a new tier, which is called a uh, Single Zone Availability Infrequent Access, or IA tier. So this is where you have data that you don't access very often, that you also have another copy of somewhere else, and so you don't need Amazon to maintain availability on it. Uh, and so you can throw it up in there and, and actually get it much, much cheaper. And this is perfect for backup storage. If you're backing something up, well, you've got your production copy of it, right? And if your production copy fails, you need the backup. But most of the time, you don't need the backup. So having that backup replicated to a bunch of different AZs isn't really necessary. So uh, you, you might want to copy in another region. That's a different story. But multiple AZs may be overkill. So you can go to this lower tier of storage and actually save some money, which means you can maintain more backups than normal because they cost less. So uh, it's kind of a, a win for us. Uh, and it uh, basically would shave off 20% of the cost by cutting down the redundancy. So instead of uh, that S3 bucket being stored in three places, which is the default, it would only be stored in two, and those two places would both be in the same availability zone. So if the AZ went down, you don't lose your data, you just lose access to the data until the AZ comes back up and then you get it again, right? Uh, if you wanted to be protected in case an AZ went down, then you'd actually have to go do the normal tier. But for most people, for backup data, it would be perfectly fine, and you could shave 20% right off of your storage costs. All right. Thank you for explaining that, Don. Now, our, our last story of the day, and remember, um, don't go anywhere. We've got an interview coming up after this. Uh, this is kind of our, our head-scratcher um, WTF story. Uh, so uh, every year, it seems like somebody makes that... Uh, Make some mistakes with April Fools, where um, you know whether it's just uh, you know some bad PR, just a joke that you know, was a little too off color. Um, this one, well, you know, it's what is today? Today's the twelfth, April twelfth, that we're filming this, and we're still talking about April Fools, and that's kind of part of the problem with this one. So, uh, Don, you were telling me the story. Why don't you sure. share that with us? So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Google made an announcement that if you were running the Google App Suite on a Android phone that was not an authorized Android phone, it would stop you from installing it. And so the modding community, people that created custom firmware were kind of annoyed with that. The biggest custom firmware that's out there is Lineage OS. And the Lineage OS team decided they were going to do an April Fool's joke to spoof what Google was doing. The problem was, while they created it and they put out release notes on April 1st, 
it didn't actually get pushed out until much later. And so it was like April 9th, April 10th, <laughs> before most people started to get this as part of a nightly update. And when you'd fire it up, what it did, and, and this is, is coming from uh, Android Police, and they've got some screenshots of it, it would do a system notification saying, validation error, you might be a victim of software counterfeiting. Tap to discover more about this, right? So Lineage OS was telling you that you might have counterfeit software. And when you tapped on it, you got this other warning that was the Lineage Genuine warning, right? Saying this device is uncertified and it didn't pass the validation. That, that's what Google is saying with their, their uh, Google Apps Suite for Android. In order to avoid malicious usage of the device's resources, lost coins will be mined on this device. Loss is a lineage OS. So they're basically saying, you're not on authorized hardware, so we're going to mine a cryptocurrency on your device. Now, there's a few areas here where this is bad. So one, it wasn't on April Fool's, and so most people thought it was, was a legitimate warning. Two... Mining Bitcoin or any kind of cryptocurrency from a mobile device is a terrible idea because they don't dissipate heat very well. And so they can they can melt down if their CPUs run at full speed for too long, which is exactly what a cryptocurrency miner would do. Um, and then three, they're not really giving you much of a choice here. They're just saying they're going to do it, uh, which is another thing that's going to really tick people off because it'll run your battery down and, and all that. They didn't actually mine the coins. It was just a joke. But they didn't do a good way of communicating that. And uh, it's just a bad joke. They ended up releasing an apology. But, uh, you know, April Fool's is fun. But I get kind of annoyed when the companies all start to do it. Um, Slashdot. Slashdot is a, a tech news website. I've gone to them since they opened way, way back in, I don't know, the late 90s. And uh, uh, every April Fool's, they would do a whole day of just April Fool's jokes for the news that day. And it was terribly, I wouldn't even bother going to the site because yeah. they had no news. It was all fake. Uh, it was fake news. They, they, they were predicting. Yeah. Who knew? Went ahead of their time. Now we know who to blame. Yeah. So uh, so anyhow, um, I get frustrated when companies do it because it's not funny. And uh, uh, Except for ThinkGeek. When ThinkGeek does it, they always turn it into a real Think product. ThinkGeek got me once because they had a, a tattoo um, uh, that, that – you could uh, uh, use e-ink, and so you could change your tattoo uh, from day to day. I was like, ah, it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm interested in that. And then it was an April Fool's joke, and I was, I was disappointed. They had the swim desk. That was pretty cool. <laughs> I didn't see that. They had one. like a pool was tattoo. Like a you swim okay. while, you're, while you're working. That's good. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the big example from them, though, was the uh, Tauntaun sleeping bag. Oh. Where instead of a zipper, it was like a little lightsaber, and yeah. you'd open up and climb inside. Uh, where yeah, it's a real thing now. Yeah. It, it's a real thing now, yeah. yeah apparently, okay. George Lucas thought it was funny, and they licensed it, and now they, they sell it. Well, on the, on the flip side of, of, of Slashdot, I think The Onion reports all real news on <laughs> April Fool's, so uh, it, it makes up for it. So just, just head over there and trust everything that you read on, on April April 1st there. there but, uh, yeah, maybe I, I was pleased that April 1st was on, a, I think, a Sunday this year because it meant that we didn't have to try to think of something here at IT Pro TV. And so yeah. um, <laughs> so next year, maybe we'll remember this and, and not, not get involved with that. But uh, all right, we're going to shift gears now and get to our interview. We're going to talk uh, all about Intel chips with Wes Bryan, who will be right here. So maybe let's do like the, the genie thing. And uh, and we'll come back and and Wes will be here. Tap so, your head. Yeah, so let's do that. So we're on, on this <laughs> shot and uh, and here's Wes. 
Well, hello. It worked. <laughs> we have Wes Bryan here. Wes, welcome to the Technique. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, fun. Fun to be here. Glad to be here. Well, we understand that you are uh, an expert on, on all things chips, and so... Um, Free to lay, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> yeah, speaking of food, I, I read this and said, all right, so Intel's getting into, into coffee now? Yes, so, absolutely. So coffee, like that, that's a code name? It is. It's uh, like most of the uh, the Intel line. You know, they uh, they have a code name for them, and then once the uh, they release the processor, it's kind of like uh, Prince. It's the uh, you know the processor line formerly known as Coffee Lake. So yeah, that is the latest and greatest. Okay, so the the official release name on these is is this i nine i nine series. Yep, okay, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's part of the the new i Core X series that they have too. The i nine just happens to be uh, the biggest and the baddest of the bunch for sure. All right, so what makes these processors better than the previous? What, well, what, what was the previous one? I'm, I've got I've got a chart here that kind of uh, outlines all the uh, the order that all these chips have been coming out. So, um, what's the previous one here? The i7, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty much been the i7 and mobiles, and uh, really it comes down to it. It's been the i7s and the quad core processors. And one of the big things about this one is that well, it's it's an i9, and uh, Don and I were kind of joking about well, okay, what did they do? They added you know, two place values or whatever, two numerical values to the letter or the number there. What makes this better? Well, if one thing is it's just it's the most powerful processor that they've actually brought to mobile. They've they've brought that i9 series, which we usually see in high-end workstations uh, rather than laptops. See, now, now this is where I started getting confused, and I said, we got to get Wes on the show because <laughs> uh, I saw that they announced the i9s, mm -hmm. and to me, that's a big jump, right? We've had i i3, i5, i7 for years and years. All of a sudden, they announced i9s. That's that's like going from 386 to 486, isn't it? Like a huge jump. Uh, but I couldn't find out what the hell that meant. And and you had like, uh, we had KB Lake before, yep. which means nothing to me. And then uh, <laughs> Coffee Lake now. And I, I don't even know where all these lakes are. And, and so it was just confusing. But then the fact that it was mobile, you just mentioned desktop. Are, are these Are these in desktop yet or is it just mobile so far? Well, with the one that's out right now, the i9-8950HK that we see there in the top of the list, that is a mobile processor. And, and again, one of the biggest things and why everybody's like, oh, this is just amazing, is if you think about the uh, X-Series that they released with the i9s uh, before, these were 18-core processors, uh, around $2,000. So they were very high-end processors. And again, they were uh, kind of their flagship. Uh, and they were put in desktops. They weren't put in mobile processors. Uh, and uh, like I said before, you know, prior to that, it was i7 quad cores. Uh, this brings, uh, you know, a six core 12 thread processor uh, to your, your your laptops. And if you go over to things like you, you can visit uh, the Intel's newsroom, right? They're, they're really focusing it around like the gaming experience, right? Uh, improved frames per second uh, and things like uh, content creation as well. But there's, there's a few more bells and whistles that they're adding to it. So, you know, the, 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 the first thing I did is I said, okay, they've announced this thing that's new. I'll just compare it to the old one, see what's changed, and, and that'll tell me what's new. So Intel has this nice little comparison tool. I can check off these two processors. Let me do it. Uh, so I'm going to check off that, that i7, and, uh, and this, this i7 came out at about the same time. So mm -hmm. it should have the, you know, the latest and greatest features. I checked off the i9, I hit compare, and then I started looking at this list Comparing it, and so see, it's got the i7 on the left and the i9 is on the right. And as I go down the list, I'm not really seeing anything different beyond price, right? <laughs> the the i9 is almost $200 more, which is a mm -hmm. pretty pretty good chunk. But uh, they're both six cores. They both are hyper-threaded, so they can do 12 threads. Um, the i9 is at 2.9 gigahertz versus 2.6 gigahertz for the i7. So it's it's 
it's got uh, more bandwidth to it, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, so that that that's a difference. But kind of going down the line, I didn't really see anything super different other than like there's more of this or more of that. So to me, I look at it and I say, well, why why wouldn't you just call that an i7? Like why, why give it this new name? Is that, is that just marketing or is there some feature that I'm just not seeing in the comparison table? No, I really think it's it's just one of those marketing things because uh, uh, like you said, uh, looking down through the comparison, you know, there's uh, a little bit more in here like therm- uh, the graphics uh, max dynamic uh, uh, frequency and stuff, but really not too much more. You know, it's got the uh, Turbo Boost uh, 3.0 technology, which I kind of I kind of consider that kind of like core targeting, right? If you have four cores and they're maxed at, uh, let's say, 2.9 gigs, uh, gigahertz, right? And we're using a workload that maybe only needs a single thread. Uh, Well, what they do is they just kind of reduce the voltage in the other cores and they just put all that voltage into a single core and it can boost up to about 4.8 gigahertz. So, uh, you know, just an improved, uh, you know, improved um, chipset, different chipset. Um, as well, I believe this is the uh, the 300 series uh, chipset, uh, likewise too. Uh, and again, you know, not really too much different. I think I think it might just be that marketing thing because they were so happy with their i9 18 core. Well, they figured they had to bring a 12 or a 6 core to mobile. This is the like Apple school of marketing, right? That your Apple Watch one or two might be <laughs> fine, but the Apple Watch three, we're gonna put a red dot on it. And if Ooh. people see you don't have that red dot, they'll know you're not running the three. I, I just thought it was humorous because as you scan down the list, I, I've been scrolling. For those of you that are watching the video and not just listening to audio, uh, as you scroll down this list of features, there's a blue line anytime there's a difference. And most of the time, there's something on the i7 that's just either faster or there's a little bit more of it in the i9. But for the whole rest of the document, it's things that are missing in the i9. That mm-hmm. the, the i7 actually had more features that they... I, I don't know. Maybe they had to make room or cut out. Uh, my favorite was VPro because remember Intel VPro had those security exploits earlier this year or at the end of last year, uh, and so apparently Intel fixed that by eliminating VPro. Uh, <laughs> right here, there's no no VPro in that i9. <laughs> That's a good way to eliminate that problem. <laughs> Just take it out altogether. That, that, so, uh, so is this something then that um, y- you suggest? we look at upgrading to or is this kind of uh hey this is cool this this is w- where things are going but let's wait and see where it goes well i tell you what uh, let's bring back up that uh, comparison because it, it's interesting because as we know you know apple for now i know that we've probably heard about the rumors that they're going to eventually ditch intel and they're working on internal models too so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see uh but if you it, you know if you focus in on the memory support right uh, that's that's one big thing and that's obviously going to be implemented a little bit different in uh mac than it is it's going to be in pc right uh because you, you see that the chip actually supports 64 gigs of ram and it supports the ddr4 2666 ram well, we're never going to see that in a MacBook Pro, even though it does support, you know, and again, there will be support for these i9HKs. Uh, you, you know, we've heard that, uh, well, they don't really like going with something that's going to draw more power. So they're sticking with the LP DDR3 there that you see the 2133, and it's going to be 16 gigs. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be even maxed out to 30, 32 gigs. So you see a limiting factor there just because, they, you know, they talk about the difference between a one pint, uh, you know, the memory uh, consuming one point five volts uh, or watts of uh, em- energy versus uh, I think it's three to four watts that the DDR4 does and they want to save that battery life. I know that makes a big difference because uh, I- I've been critical of my MacBook because uh, it's a-, a pro but it only has 16 gigs of RAM which I eat up on a regular basis um, but I get over 10 hours of battery life 
I have a System76 laptop that has an i7 and it has 32 gigs of RAM in it, but I get like three and a half hours of battery life. So that that threshold, like once you cross over 16 gigs, or I guess it's it's not so much the the amount, it's going DDR3 to DDR4. That's where the power consumption comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really does. We're talking, about, I mean, that's one of the things that have really been just, you know, you see for the most mm-hmm. part um, when they come out with new DDR standards, uh, a lot of times you see a reduce, you know, a reduction in the voltage, but they've gone even more, even farther than that with the LP DDR series, whether it's DDR3 or DDR4 with the low powered. Uh, data, double data rate uh, memory too. So yeah, it's, it's usually about the voltage. Again, 1.5 volts, or I believe watts, if I get this right, 1.5 watts versus um, around three to four watts. So one of the things I used to tell people, people would ask me for advice and they'd say, all right, what, what uh, processors should I get? And I would say, uh, you know, if you're a video gamer, you can consider AMD, but if you do anything else, stay away from AMD. Uh, and then on the Intel side, if you're a cheapskate, you get an i3, but they're not very, very efficient. They're not very fast. Um, an i5 is great for most people. It'll give you a multi-core processor. An i7 will get you hyper-threading, which a lot of users will never take advantage of. But if you're a a uh, video gamer or uh, an IT professional, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're running little databases or dev environments, you'll actually benefit from that i7. But hyper-threading was the big difference between an i5 and an i7. Mm-hmm. It looks like I don't have a piece that I can give as advice like that for why would I go for an i7 versus an i9. Um, Is there anything you can think of or it's just, hey, it's an i9, you'll you'll have a red dot on your watch. Do you like money? (laughs) 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 Then go with the i7. Well, uh, in in the older chips, too, like if you look at some of the integrated features, too, you know, you had uh, support for the 802.11ac, but it was a two-by mode, uh, so it was under gigabit speeds. And one of the things that the new i9 is going to support is a higher range gigabit uh, Wi-Fi, um, as well as, um, you know, just, you so you get the two two times faster in that standard. I believe it's, um, yeah, you're going to get into the gigabit versus like 867 megabits mm. uh, s- speed. So that's, that's one of the things that it does. It does increase the uh, gigabit speeds. And again, they're also pushing for things like uh, mobile VR and stuff, but we've uh, yet, yet to see how well that'll work out. Uh, and again, it's funny that you talk about AMD uh, and um, uh, um, uh, Intel here, but it, it, we'll, we'll see when this comes out, but they're actually going to be in bed together, uh, which is kind of interesting. And some of the newer Intel chips are going to actually integrate the Radeon Vega uh, graphics, and now we're going to have a, a CPU that's Intel supported by the graphics in AMD on all in the same chip. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. So it, to me, it sounds like right now this is a this is not something that I would specifically set out to upgrade to. Like, I've got to have this i9. It's more of an upgrade of opportunity. But in the future, this might be a big difference, that, that it might be that it's the one that has the Radeon graphics built in or, or something of that nature. Yeah, definitely, because you've seen, and again, for those of you that are watching, you know, you've seen the specs, thermal design uh, point or power doesn't change, you know, the nanometer or the lithography is the same, so we're getting around the same speeds, and it really just seems like this is more of a marketing thing to say, hey, we've got this i9, remember the last one that we released, it was 18 cores, well, now we've got six cores, and you can put it in a laptop, and you can take it where you want to go. So the mobility of it, and of course, it's got the the buzzword of gaming and content creation and virtual reality, which uh, apparently the i7 didn't have all that marketing behind, so it must make it better. Well, yeah, course. I got to say thank you, Wes, for coming in and explaining to us because 
I didn't I didn't know what a chip was, and, and Don didn't know the difference between the i7 and the i9. So I think we've both gone up a, a degree of magnitude in, in our, our knowledge of chips. Anything else uh, we should know about this announcement uh, before we move on? No, just uh, do, do what Don and you guys have showed on the, uh, you know, here on the podcast. Uh, do your side-by-side uh, comparison be sure, before you decide to shell out, uh, you know, an, an extra $500 on your processor because you, you might – you might be able to spend that money in other areas and get a lot better, I don't know, you know, SSDs, if you will, NVRAM and stuff. You might be able to spend that in uh, other areas and get better performance. And, you know, while we've got you here in the studio, let me put you on the spot about something I, I've just been curious about. Uh, might tie into this, might not. Uh, what, what do you know about TurboMax? The TurboMax frequent? Uh, okay, well, TurboMax, uh, it, it's a technology that, uh, you know, I kind of co- call it core focusing. Um, Intel is helping me focus on my core. Uh, basically, uh, you know, um, certain workloads, multi-threading workloads, and I know that you've talked about this on the podcast before, not everything needs a multi or a, you know, a hyper-threading situation. And sometimes things, you know, applications don't take full advantage of more than one core. So if you have, again, a single thread, uh, basically what it can do is it can use that uh, thermal velocity boost, they call it TVB or whatever, and it dynamically and automatically increases the clock frequency up to the 4.8 gig. Uh, gigahertz speeds and then takes all that power and focuses it either into a single core uh, or maybe even a dual core configuration. Basically, it's just dynamically adjusting where the voltage is. We've seen this throughout, uh, you know, Intel's history with voltage positioning uh, technologies and voltage regulation, you know, that they're doing. And basically, that's what Turbo uh, Boost is. I I consider it kind of like a, you know, a single uh, extreme, extreme single threading, if you will. So I... I remember back in the day, right? So I, I one of my first computers was a a 386. Uh, I believe it was a 386 DX40, which you know, if you push the turbo button, it was a 40. If you unpush the turbo button, it was a 33. And then I had a 486 DX266. Same thing. If you push the turbo button, you were at 66. So um, turbo has been around a long time. Mm-hmm. But this TurboMax, I'm only recently hearing about that. Is, is that a new feature with Coffee Lake, or has that been around a little while? It's been around. I mean, it's in a 3.0 right now. They've had 2.0 and obviously 1.0. So it, 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 and it doesn't replace any of the earlier technologies, I would say, is as more as it kind of just builds on the past generation, kind of like we see in Wi-Fi standards, right? You know, the Wi-Fi standards that are, uh, you know, have been built into past standards get kind of just rounded up and then added features into uh, the newer standard. Again, it really doesn't, um, it, it really doesn't change, if you will some of the earlier uh, turbo boost standards again it depends on the things like you know the type of the workload if you have a lightly threaded workload obviously turbo boost is going to be the way to go if you have a multi-threading application well you might not even see really the advantage of the turbo boost because it can again dynamically and uh, well, automatically i guess adjust and kind of kind of analyze the workload and what you have going on in the cores and then automatically adjust to what whatever the workload is Okay, excellent. So, uh, you know, what, what I'm thinking is, like, if I'm running a virtual machine and I've got it tied to one virtual processor, then you, you'd actually benefit from something like that. I, I just, I, I don't follow processors as closely as I follow a lot of other technologies, so I hadn't heard much about it, and now I see it in some of these announcements. I'm like, well, is, is that a new feature or has that been right. around? So thank you for uh, shedding some light on that for us. Definitely. All right, cool. And thank you, all of you, for uh, joining us here on the TechNado. I got to get used to saying that, the TechNado. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and speaking of which, all of our um, uh, our feeds, our RSS feeds, are updated now to say the TechNado. So if you're telling your friends to go and check us out, which we really hope you do, um, you can let them know to search for TechNado on iTunes and Google Play and all those places. Uh, and uh, be sure to go there and rank us as well after you share us uh, with your friends. 
Um, and so I guess that's going to do it for us. Any closing thoughts, Don? You know, I really don't have any this week. It was uh, it was not the, the craziest news week. I'm looking forward no. to some of the announcements that are about to come up. There's a couple of big company announcements that are coming down the line. So, well, from our perspective, we've got we've got RSA next week. So yeah. I'm going out along with uh, with Daniel Lowry and, and Titus is on our team as well. And and we're going to get I think we've got 18 interviews lined up. Um, wow. And we'll probably nice. you know get a couple more as well or, or as schedules change. So. Um, We'll go ahead and, and do some recording out there for for the uh, for the podcast here as well, and and, awesome. and bring that back with us. But so that's something uh, exciting to look forward to. And and I'll tell you what, I'm I'm excited to get home and uh, and rip open all of my uh, my hardware devices now that uh, I know I can just go in there with a hammer and, and, your and warranties not will be fine. Any warranties, yeah. No, this chip was like that. I, I promise. <laughs> I didn't do it. That's what it looked like. So <laughs> even uh, with the hammer imprint and all, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so enjoy tinkering with your hardware. Uh, tonight at home, and uh, that's, that came out. That's great. It really came That's out fantastic. Yep. All right, I'm going to go ahead and leave for us. Anything else weird? So, good night, everyone. <laughs>